0: We serve those persecuted believers, but it's their experiences that come back and empower us to be more bold in our faith. And so for me, it's a real blessing and a real affirmation that God has called me. He continues to use me in this role, and I am just grateful for the privilege.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepard. Today, our conversation will feature Carl Moeller, the President and CEO of Open Doors USA. First Person is available each week at this time as we center on telling someone's faith story and what God has led them to do in life. All of our past interviews are archived online so you can go back and listen to any previous program. Just go to FirstPersonInterview.com. Click on Archive. That's FirstPersonInterview.com. And if you're a Facebook person, you'll find us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash FirstPersonInterview. Well, our guest today is Carl Moeller, a dedicated advocate for millions of Christians around the globe who are denied religious freedom and basic human rights. He travels the world to encourage Christians who are facing discrimination, imprisonment, and even death for their faith. Here in the U.S., he's focused on raising awareness of the plight of those being persecuted. Carl and I recently met in Atlanta and sat down to talk about his story and how it intersects with the persecuted church.
0: It's always interesting how much of your story ends up being connected to the, to the reason that you're you know, sure. sort of doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I was raised by a, a very loving Christian family in, in northern New Jersey, um, and uh, but like a lot of kids, kind of rejected it or went out on my own to try and figure out this whole faith thing for myself. Um, but one thing that came back to me as I was just here this week uh, thinking about this, um, my parents brought missionaries home. Uh, on Sunday afternoons i don't even know if people do that anymore. have <laughs> Sunday afternoon dinner, but we'd always have the missionaries that came in from overseas come to our house and uh, so I heard stories about the jungles of you know Kenya and Africa so that was an education for you then complete education uh, even in my rebellion, I never really rejected the the faith. I just kind of went out on my own to kind of pursue things. Um, and then, you know, went away to Penn State University and thought, okay, I've left, left all that Christianity stuff behind, but uh, but God doesn't leave you behind. And uh, and so there uh, I got involved uh, through my fraternity, uh, happened to be going through a real rough patch in, in my life, um, had a lot of things lined up, but a lot of things weren't making any sense. And one of my fraternity brothers started to share Christ with me. And through a, a series of uh, witnessing opportunities, I gave my heart to Christ and... Uh, then became known as part of the, quote, God squad in my fraternity house. <laughs> you uh, were one
1: of those guys. One of those guys, uh-huh.
0: exactly. And uh, and it took a little ribbing, took a little bit of uh, edging, and felt a little bit, you know, if you will, maybe even persecuted. Um, but uh, I stayed in. I felt the Lord had put me there for a reason, not to leave but to stay there. And, uh, again, that was another thing that I think later God would unfold in my life about the reasons why he does that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well... Um, then after college, I joined the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ, a small Christian organization. I, I you I've may ever, have heard of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> had, uh, had, had a tremendous opportunity to do several uh, things with Campus Crusade. I worked at the uh, University of Minnesota first and then worked um, after that at Yale University, where I was a football team chaplain. Really. Combine your love for the Lord wow. and your love for football. That's and a, get paid for and it. And get paid for it. That was pretty exciting. trifecta. That's right. <laughs> uh, and while I was there, I went down to... Uh, I, I had the opportunity to go to Texas and do some uh, speaking, and uh, I actually got to meet uh, Dick Purnell, who was a speaker for Campus Crusade mm-hmm. for Christ. Uh, Dick and I hit it off real well. I brought him up to Yale to do uh, some, some meetings for us, and then I became Dick's... Um, uh, sort of advanced man, personal assistant for a number of years, um, and uh, that led me to meet my wife, who was working with another guy you know, Josh McDowell. Oh yeah, and they were they were roommates at Wheaton College for uh, years that I found out later, and then uh, Dick and Josh were officing together in Texas when we got. We got married, my wife and I, so,
1: yeah. And your family today?
0: Uh, We have four beautiful kids, uh, two not-so-beautiful dogs, (laughs) and two (laughs) guinea pigs. Uh, Kim and I live in Southern California. I'm so sorry. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> suffering for the Lord in Orange County California
1: but how often are you home
0: well you know the the, the that's that's something I'm sure we'll talk about but uh, I've been to about 60 countries 62 countries actually and uh, um, I have the opportunity to uh, over the last eight years working with open doors to expose my family to the realities of the suffering church the the global church that that is suffering for their faith in Jesus and it's been remarkable Wayne I have to tell you I, I I've prayed. I prayed all the time with traveling this much. Would I be able to give my family the experience of the reality of the church and not have them lose dad in the process? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can tell you so far, God has been truly faithful to that prayer.
1: When did God start to stir in your heart? It had to be during the Campus Crusade days for the world uh, the, the larger world out there. I mean you mentioned the missionaries at home when you're a kid.
0: Right. And and I and during college I had gone to uh, Kenya and spent a summer in Kenya with okay. the African Inland Mission and But there's uh,
1: nothing like that experience, is there?
0: Nothing like it. In fact, today even I will I will go into churches and ask people who's been on a mission trip and if it's a, a mission-minded church, they'll I have a lot of people raise their hand and I said, "How many of you have always felt when you come back that the people there gave you far more than you ever" Gave them and whatever you were there to do. And almost every hand goes straight up again because it's that kind of reality. It was for me as well. I went to Africa and I was like, wow. <laughs> Um, But my real heart for the Lord and my real heart for the globe began to unpack uh, after my wife and I were married, and I began to work with uh, uh, the Eastern European director of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, a man named Bud Hinkson.
1: And those were interesting East European days. Well,
0: those were the days, yeah. I I, I politely refer to them. That's before the Earth's crust cooled. (laughs) And uh, it was uh, pre Berlin Wall coming down. This was uh, 1989. In fact, the year that my wife and I uh, took the opportunity with Campus Crusade to go work with Bud in Eastern Europe and uh, travel into Czechoslovakia and Poland and East Germany and Romania and
1: freely travel or
0: well, we went in as tourists primarily, and uh, this is where sort of my understanding uh, of what Christians under persecution really go through. Uh, Kim and I were there with Campus Crusade to go into these countries, travel and go word of mouth to meet the different pastors and churches uh, all through these different countries and to expose them to evangelism and discipleship training methodologies. Um, in so doing, we met some pastors that blew my mind. Uh, one pastor in Czechoslovakia, I'll never forget, sitting in his kitchen, and his wife was there, and we had tea, and, uh, and Kim and I were just sitting there. And he said, yes, I was arrested, and I spent 20 years in prison in Czechoslovakia for my faith. He was a PhD uh, in, in electrical engineering, and when he got out, they made him a uh, street sweeper. Yeah. And he said, you know, but I swept those streets for the Lord Jesus. And, you know, I mean, you, you, know, you just oh, realize right. this was an, an incredible – exposure to yeah. this side of Christianity that I had no yeah, idea
1: about yeah. that you were uh, you didn't stand a chance did you
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, likely uh, it was also a moment of great historical importance you know as the berlin was, wall was coming down and all of these countries were going through their revolutions i happened to be in poland the day that solidarity was legalized <laughs> that that uh, trade union led by lech walesa and one day it's all gray communism and the next day everything was red and white and (laughs) vibrant so it was a historical Uh, moment what about the
1: transition to open doors then
0: well, um, uh, you know, going on from that, I had, I had known about Brother Andrew. Even as a 12 year old boy at church camp, I read this cool comic book of God Smuggler. I, I read the, uh, you know, the cross and the switchblade one in the hiding place. But when I read God Smuggler, I said, that guy's cool. He's like James Bond and Indiana Jones and and, you know, and Billy Graham all rolled up in one.
1: For those who don't know, just Google Brother Andrew yeah. and you'll get the full story.
0: But... Yeah. And uh, and so while I, I was actually a pastor at Saddleback Church uh, in in Southern California, that's another small struggling organization. Another small struggling organization. <laughs> I've had tremendous blessings to work with some amazing Christian vi- visionary leaders like Rick Warren and like um, Brother Andrew. Uh, but it was in 2003 they uh, they were looking for a new uh, leader of the U.S. Uh, open Doors work, and. Um, I was contacted. I did one of those typical Southern California things. I, I took my beach chair and went to the beach for a day and just <laughs> just prayed and just talked to God and watched the surfers and I said, okay, God. And I'm not a guy who hears, you know, voices or visions or anything like that. But there was a there was a point in time when I was going for the final interview where I was just looking in the mirror and I just heard the Lord say, I'm going to give you this position and I'm going to do something with you through it. And I went, okay, Lord, I'm going to believe you for that. And um, that was the journey part that led me almost full circle, I would say, yeah. to that those sort of kitchen table discussions with missionaries to say, okay, I, I want to be on this.
1: It's only happened uh, to me once, maybe twice in my life, where I've had that experience. It's, it's almost an audible voice yeah. that you hear. God's voice is so unmistakable in those circumstances, though. How else do you describe it?
0: Well, you know, and, and the Bible describes it as a, as a still, small voice. There was no fanfare. There was no, you know, thunderclaps or lightning bolts. It was, I, you know, between you and me, I was shaving. You know, I was standing there shaving <laughs> yeah, yeah. and just letting, you know, the the Spirit just said, this was a clear, as vo- almost as audible as if you were and I were talking right now. But it, again, I, I'm not one who who seeks those things or looks for those things. But when they come, you do know it. And deep in your heart, you know that that's a, that's a reality. Of course,
1: God uses other people uh, in much the same way. He uses his word, of course. That's, that's primary right. in prayer. But there's something about those experiences. I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah. they're very mysterious but they're unmistakable.
0: Well, most of the time, I hear God's voice through my wife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know if anybody. Yeah, I think it's Louis Palau who <laughs> says
1: that very often the voice of God sounds like your wife. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: And it. it and uh, and of course, you know, through the opportunity that was presented to me, uh, Kim and I spent a lot of time in prayer, and and we felt very, very comfortable because even though we knew it would involve somewhat risky travel to very dangerous places, it was it was right and it felt right uh, for. The opportunities that Kim and I had had in Eastern Europe, we felt that there was a uh, that there was something in this. And and again, I can tell you now in much more clarity what those things have been over eight years. But it is it is truly a remarkable journey.
1: Coming up in a moment, we'll continue talking with Carl Moeller about what we can learn from oppressed believers. Next time on First Person, we'll talk with Jim Van Eybroe. We
0: prove. The Lordship of Jesus Christ just by being faithful to his commands. You know, simple obedience, simple submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Those are foundational
1: commands, but very important for understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. A tale of failure and forgiveness with Jim Van Eyprin next time on First Person. Carl, as we've talked, uh, you've made it clear how the Lord brought you to Open Doors uh, USA as president and CEO, but let's talk about what you found when you got there. What, What's going on in the world that we need to know about?
0: Uh, boy, you know, uh, th- it was an eye-opener for me. I was a, a pastor in a nice suburban church, and uh, all of a sudden to be thrust, literally, into places like rural Vietnam or uh, sub-Saharan Africa or China, China or the Middle East, you know, where, where Christians are actively persecuted. It, it, it kind of took my breath away. And certainly for the first few months, I was just really struggling and to say, okay, God, what is it that you have for me? Um, my wife and I went to our very first director's conference two weeks after we accepted the position. <laughs> and most of but Open that Doors, was an education. It was a total education. Most of Open Doors directors have been uh, with Brother Andrew in this ministry for many, many years, so most of them over 20 years. So here I was saying two weeks... And the first couple nights, the way the old directors' conference used used to be run, they were about eight hours each day of the first two days of reports from the field. And Wayne, I can tell you candidly, I've never heard anything. I was not prepared mentally for the must have been stories, numbed by that, huh? Uh, the suffering was was incredible. And in fact, you make you make it through the day because you're in a room with other people. But Kim and I went back to our rooms at the end of the day, and literally wept on our beds and said, "Are we?" up for this and, and and essentially we we had to answer no god we are not capable of understanding what this is all about the suffering of your church around the world it breaks your it's got to break your heart every day and you know it's it's the body of christ suffering again and again and again um, and yet we also knew that there was some depth richness and treasure that god has in this that we were just beginning to understand there were people among us who were part of that suffering church, who had a joy, a resonance in their Christian life, a depth and, and a power in their prayers that you know, was just like contagious and it was effective. I mean I wanted to I wanted to know it more. So that began our journey about understanding this part of the body of Christ. What
1: is the mission of open doors?
0: Well, essentially, we strengthen persecuted Christians worldwide, uh, wherever we are, wherever they are, we're there empowering spiritual courage. Um, and you know, for many, many years, it, it primarily consisted of smuggling Bibles mm-hmm. into these places. And today, it still consists of literally millions of Bibles smuggled into countries every year, uh, where you know the, the Bible is illegal or or, you know, or restricted highly. Um, it also means training and and encouraging the Christian community to stand strong. Uh, it means providing economic resources where they don't have any. What Open Doors does is essentially come alongside the body of Christ invisibly and undetectably to the authorities around, and just give them the resources they need to keep being the witness for Jesus.
1: How do you do that in a non-paternalistic way? You know what
0: I mean by that, right? I do. And, in fact, that was one of the subtle things that I learned about my own Christian faith by coming to Open Doors, is that I had a sort of, uh, and you use the word again, paternalism, that said uh, subtly and benignly, I think, and in Well-intentioned, well-intentioned, yes. well-intentioned that we have some things that they need. In other words, you know, a, a paternalism says, you're in need, I'll take care of you. And I approach the suffering church as a needy church. Boy, I couldn't have been more wrong. Now, now I want to be very clear. They are needy. Oh, yeah. In many cases, they are the poorest part of a society. Pakistan, uh, 3% of the, the population of Pakistan is Christian. 85% of those people are illiterate. They can't get real jobs. They have to work as wage slaves. So they are needy physically. But the richness of treasure of Jesus Christ that they have, we are poverty stricken compared to that. Yes, for what they have. Yes, and so I began to understand this dynamic of why, in this incredible cauldron of suffering, these believers come away with such power and joy and resilience in their faith. It's they've been refined by the refiner's fire. Yeah, and and coming through that, they stand strong, and they have something that they want to bless us with.
1: I'll never forget talking with a Vietnamese pastor a few years ago who said, we drink from a bitter cup. And this man was leading church movements that were growing where the persecution was the hardest, was where the church was growing the fastest. But he said, we drink from a bitter cup. You drink from a cup with a sleeping potion in it. Oh, boy.
0: Didn't that say it? That is totally together. I had a Chinese house church pastor not long ago tell me the same, essentially the same thing. He said, Carl, we pray for you because we in China know that Persecution is only the devil's second best weapon to destroy the church. Materialism and consumerism yeah. is his best weapon to weaken. So its...
1: there's our need That's is to understand that
0: exactly. Yeah. And you know, and I think this is a beautiful representation, if you will, of the body of Christ. We have been blessed materially with things that we must be sharing. And I think one of the calls of our book is to say to the American church, "Look, we have these things for a reason. We have to bless those that don't have them." But in the very same sense, there are some things, huge gaps. The paternalism that we were speaking of means really we have to approach them in humility to say they have the riches. We don't have things to offer them. They can offer those things back to us. Yeah.
1: As we speak right now, there are people whose very lives are at stake because of the, because of the fact they name the name of Christ. I, I, you know their names. I mean, you know what these cases are. Help us understand what is going on, what, through stories perhaps, for just a couple of moments.
0: Sure. You know, I uh, I had the privilege recently of, of, of going to the Middle East and doing a, uh, a series of interviews for a television special we're doing on Iran and on the underground church in Iran. And Iran is the number two country in the world uh, where Christians are persecuted. Number one is North Korea and have some stories about that, too. But but one story stands out in my heart so strongly right now, because uh, as I'm, I interviewed about five families that had personally been part of the crackdown that the Iranian government did last year on the underground church, this brother had been a soldier in, in the Iranian army, had come to faith in Jesus Christ through a television satellite broadcast, and And gave his heart fully to Jesus and became an underground house church leader, a very charismatic, young, uh, dynamic man, Um, young wife, young baby. And he was arrested last November uh, with uh, the crackdown that the Iranian government did on the house church movement. Um, Many of those pastors just disappeared. We don't know where they are. They're most likely tortured to death. Um, In essence, this pastor was tortured every day for three weeks. He shared with me how either he was hung up by his wrists or his his ankles. He was put into a small three foot box of uh, and and cold water poured on him every day in the middle of the Iranian winter. And I thought to myself, what a, what a, what an an inconceivable hardship. But I'm an American, so an American. In this situation, I asked the stupidest question, <laughs> I, and I told him that later. I said, "I am so sorry for that question," but I asked, "What were you feeling during this time?" Mm-hmm. But you know, I was so surprised by his answer, Wayne. I saw a, a change come over his face. He had been relatively, you know, unexpressionless, um, and yet he just broke out in this huge grin, and he he raised his thumb up like this, you know, and he just said that I was considered worthy oh. to suffer. Oh. Like my it's, Lord Jesus. I mean, and so yeah. my, my reality in that moment is, you know, these are the people that, that Hebrews says uh, the world is not worthy of. Um, my son used to play Little League baseball, and at eight years old, he was part of the Yankees team, you know, the little little Yankees, <laughs> little hat and everything. <laughs> the pinstripes and the pinstripes whole works. Pinstripes yeah, the whole yeah. works, right? And I think of him because... You know, he would he would see Yankee players, real major league players on television, and he'd be like, Oh, look at that. And you know, it's this sort of mentality that says, I wanna be like them. Because frankly, we're in the little leagues when it comes to our Christian lives here, and these men and women are are they in the major leagues and they are they are truly experiencing a relationship with Christ that can inspire us to follow him closer.
1: In my brief exposure on a couple of occasions to people, for instance in China. I'm always impressed when we ask them how we can pray. They never, ever ask that we pray that the persecution stops. That's Why? Right. Why
0: is that? Well, I think they've learned the lesson that persecution comes through the hands of God for his purposes. It. It doesn't. They, they mean,
1: ask for faith to withstand the. To exactly. Yeah.
0: They. They. Uh, one of the Chinese house church uh, leaders a few years ago told us the illustration of the Chinese house church is like bamboo in winter. Uh, in the in the winter time, the the snow weighs the bamboo down and it lays flat on the ground, but as the snow melts. It comes right back up again.
1: Stronger than ever. Stronger than ever. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: and you know, many many stories and illustrations from that Chinese church illustrate the fact that it's the it's it's the the experience of being persecuted that releases a, a, a fragrance of Christ. That's a New Testament expression: the fragrance of Christ filling a country through these persecuted believers. Most of them would say, "Please don't take the persecution away." Not because they don't want to suffer. I mean, they do. They they don't want to suffer. But they don't want to lose the opportunity to see Jesus Christ yeah. influence their country.
1: Any question in your mind that God's called you to do what you do?
0: <laughs> no questions. And I know his, his word to me that day I was shaving uh, has been fulfilled in many, many ways. He is doing an amazing work. And I get the privilege, if you will, of, of being able to be a, a, a spokesperson for his work around the global church. Um, we're a relatively invisible organization in the countries we work in. We have to be, um, uh, precisely because we want to be continued to be effective. But when I get the opportunity to, to share this with American Christians, I also see the other dynamic. We serve those persecuted believers and empower them with spiritual courage, but it's their experiences that come back and empower us to be more bold in our faith. And so for me, it's a real blessing and a real affirmation that God has called me. He, is, he continues to use me in this role, and I am just grateful for the privilege.
1: We can't do it, but he can. Amen. He does it. Carl Moeller, the president and CEO of Open Doors USA. I thank God for Carl and for those who work with him to raise our awareness of the plight of brothers and sisters in Christ, persecuted and even killed for naming the name of Christ. For more information about Open Doors and their work of advocating those being persecuted for their faith, please visit our website, FirstPersonInterview.com. You'll learn more about Carl and find links to Open Doors. That and more at FirstPersonInterview.com. Plus, I hope you'll visit our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash FirstPersonInterview, for updates and additional information. And by the way, thanks for your feedback to what you hear on First Person. We're starting our second year of broadcasting with this program, and you can reach us through our Facebook page or our website, firstpersoninterview.com. Next week, I'll talk with longtime friend Jim Van Iperen. Jim has founded Metanoia Ministries, helping churches in crisis, and he's written a new book, The Good Confession, A Tale of Failure and Forgiveness. That's next week when you join us for First Person. Now with thanks to my producer and friend, Joe Carlson. I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next time for First Person.